good to see you guys. Um, before I begin anything, I want to uh, begin by actually telling you guys that I thank you for existing. Um, I've been with the second generation of well ministry since back in 1999. I was heavily, very heavily involved with uh, the college ministries uh, back in North Carolina with the, the Duke University, UNC, and then NC State uh, being the major three campuses that I used to work with um, as a lay leader, not as a pastor. I went to seminary very late, um, so I was a uh, much more of a college ministry coordinator, church lay leader, and all else um, within the church. But then um, as I was working more and more with the second generational um, groups, uh, my heart of wanting to help and be a part of growth, be a part of the platform for the next step of the second generation has grown. Um, it has grown big. Um, and at a certain point, when I was like, what, 36, that's when God called me to ministry. Uh, like many of the people who got called into the ministry late, I didn't want to be a pastor. Uh, it was my me growing up in the church all my life. Um, I knew how rigorous of a job was and the calling the pastorship was. And even even apart from that, to to do anything or to do a church planting with a second generation Korean American or Asian American setting is one of the most difficult platform of a church planting out there. Um, it's so difficult to a point where the pastor that I used to work with, who's in Egypt right now, um, before he went to overseas uh, mission, uh, we had a lunch together and then um, he said, hey, David, I feel sorry for you. What do you say that? And then he said, that now I'm actually going to Egypt and I'm going to enjoy it thoroughly. And then this is, you know, it's, it's a ministry that, that, you know, it's very enjoyable throughout. But the ministry that you are about to, to jump into, um, it's the hardest ministry that he knows that exists out there. Um, so I didn't really clearly understand what he meant because on, up to that moment, my ministry basically was uh, working with the Korean church, working in EM department, right? And we, we thought that EM department had it hard. Um, but they once you actually start envisioning and try to start a church, it's a totally different level of stress, right? But anyhow, um, so that's what brought me into the ministry of second gen. Um, and as I, kind of jump into the second-gen church planting from the EM um, culture, I realized more and more and more how the, we are so late, we're so behind in the movement of having to plant the church for our second generation. I recently had a talk with, you know, Pastor Jason. Um, we had a lunch together. By the way, I love his taste of food, right? We We... we chatted on on you know on the, the the phone and we try to decide what places to go eat and you you always have that hesitation to like should I go out like all out in Korean food or should I go all out in like American food or do I want to meet somewhere in the middle and you always have that right but I'm 1.5 generation and I'm like very cultured more toward the second gen group within the faith you know the platform but 
my food is all in Korean. As I got older, for some reason, I just would lean much more into Korean food more. Um, and then I, I married my wife, who's like very Korean, and she grew up in the countryside of Korea, and she likes the countryside of Korean food. So ever since we got married, like, I just had a Korean food all the time. But anyhow, we got together, and then I, we talked about like having some bukbap. And then I, I, I hesitantly asked him, and then he jumped on it. He just loved it. And we got together, and we ate, and we really loved have that soul food that was so so common. It was so good. Anyhow, um, in doing that, um, I learned that that we are so behind in a a a, a movement of moving on forward from our first-generation immigrant church. And we were talking, and we said a few things about second-gen group to be the next-gen. And this is something that I actually try to remind most of the pastors. But guys, you guys are not the second-next generation. We, we still talk to you guys. We still talk, to, talk about second generation as, hey, they are the second-next generation. I'm sorry. We are way overdue now generation. We should have had our church long, long, long time ago. And we should have been well established as a church who bridges between the first generation Korean American, Asian American church and then our next generation. We are the bridge. And we are the now generation. But for some reason, we grew up in a Korean church so long, hearing that you guys are the next generation, you guys are the next generation. I met some second generation that are in their 50s and 60s. They were still thinking that they're the next generation. But you guys are not the next generation. You are the now generation. We are the ones who have to make the movement, create the platform where more of the lost generation of ours who have walked away from the church and bring back the revival. We are the ones who are called to create the platform that gives a stepping stone for our next generation to see what they are called to do as they grow up. We are the ones who should be involved with our community. We are the ones who should dream about outreaching. We are the ones who should actually engage in intercultural movements with other ethnic churches. And we are the ones who should be wrestling right now about like where should this church go in the future. But for some reason, for some reason, we are way too busy just surviving. If that. A lot of people are kind of content to this EM format of a, of a church where they're very dissatisfied with the fact that, that they're growing up as a person and professional, but the church is still treating them like a high school student. We, we kind of get burned out from that a lot, right? But then the thing is, we often kind of blame them, the first generational church, for not catering toward the growth of our second gen, us, or 1.5 like me. Um, for some reason, we don't do anything about it. We don't step out of our comfort zone. We don't envision our future. We don't try to think of our church as bigger format than what we are comfortable with. 
We hate getting out of our comfort zone of, of, of our EM format. So when I met with Pastor Jason, because, um, you know, he, he when we first met, he said he was here for like three years. So in my thought, you guys existed here for about three or four years. Because he said he inherited it from someone else. My thought was somewhere around four years. And then um, this week, he said it's 11 years. And I was like, wow. Wow. 11 years. And amongst the Southern Baptist circle, where we are known for church planting, or well known for church planting, um, do you guys know that you guys are the only Southern Baptist church, second gen church that exists in this area, the great Georgia area? I, I, I expected to see a lot more second gen churches. Um, I, I've experienced and planted with a couple other pastors um, in multi-ethnic churches. Um, and that was done in like places like Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, right? much more countryside of the, 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 the play, of this country. And I've seen that happening more and more in other places. And so before I came down, I came down to Georgia last January. Um, and before I came down, I expected to see more church movements happening in our ethnic generation. And I was actually stunned to find out that there wasn't any. Um, so guys, I thank you guys that you guys are here. I thank you guys that you guys have, have you know, suffered through all the hardships that I can't even imagine what you had to go through, all the difficulties, all the doubts, hard times. But you kept the vision and you existed to be the hand that could connect us and then the lost people of this generation. Well, anyhow, so I was going to do my personal introduction first, but then, um, but then that's very exactly where I come from. Um, college ministry lay leader. Uh, in the middle of it, God somehow called me into the ministry. I struggled with God for a year, and then I gave in. I went to Southeastern, and I loved every bit of it. I'm sure you will really enjoy the school. If I have to do it all over again, I think I'll choose South Southeastern again. Um, and then starting all over, um, I, the, the training and then the, the ministry experiences, and throughout all of that, I, I wanted to really connect the first-generation church with the second generation church. And the reason for that is that um, I worked with other, like how Pastor Jason is introducing me, I worked with some of the local white churches, white people churches. I, I like to call them local churches. Worked with some of the large local churches um, at where I was. Um, and for some reason, whenever I talked about second gen church, a second gen movement, um, Korean first generation pastors think that it's not possible. They always give me the negative feedback. It's so hard. It's not possible. Like you're kind of like, you know, kind of going for something that really doesn't need so, so on and so forth. Then when I talk to the, the pastors at a local church, they like jump on board with it. They love the idea. They want to like support me and help me to get, get it started. Um, so I was kind of looking into partnering with one of the large local churches in the area to start a church planting um, processes. Um, to receive their help and have used their platform to begin. 
But then one day as I was praying and as I was really struggling with how, I, how do I begin, who do I start this with, um, I was reading a book of Judges. And at the very end of the book of Judges, um, it talks about how on that day, people did whatever that pleased in their mind. And those are several generations after Joshua. And I started thinking, what, what, what went wrong? Well, what happened? And what we see is the one of the great, or a couple generations of the the, the 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 Bible, where they actually experienced the greatest amount of miracle and the hand of God for themselves. Moses and Joshua happened, but right immediately after Joshua, you see them fall. It's kind of the repeated theme theme throughout the entire old, like the Old Testament, right? Somebody comes up, and this person becomes a leader of a group of Jews. And then brings back God and then restores the, 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 the godness of God, our God. And then like the next generation, it falls. And if you look at how God gave Moses and Joshua his law, he clearly tells them, you have to teach and discipline your kid, your next generation with this law, right? And they fail that one after another. So when I looked into starting up a second generational church, God kind of pulled me back. Hey, what made you think that you abandoning your legacy, you abandoning, you're just cutting your, your back on your, 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 your ties with your first generation church that I blessed you with. What makes you think that you can start up a church that will be blessed by me? And the blessing will have you handed down to your next generation. And I was praying, and then I was kind of paused, and I started thinking about it, trying to answer that, and I couldn't answer it. It would have been a lot easier if I just made the jump and go to a large local church and use their resources and everything and their support, and then start up a multi-ethnic church and start it that way. That's a great platform, by the way. There's nothing wrong with that. But God said, hey, restoration first. Restoration first. And then there came a moment where I had to reflect my heart to think, where do I stand in trying to build a church on? And then one of my... Mentors back at the, at that time basically said, Hey, David, I think your vision is great. Um, you know, I see the excitement. I see the, the possibility. I see your, your clear, your clarity on knowing who are the lost people. I love all of that. But he said, but David, you cannot build a church on a bitterness. You can't build it on bitterness. I said, who said I'm bitter? He says, I can hear it from your voice all over. It's everywhere. They said, you need to walk away from that. You can only build a church on God's grace and love. You can't build it on bitterness. But internally, I know that's something that we 
most of us second generation have. We still struggle with it. A lot of people are still very bitter toward it. A lot of second gen groups are still walking away from the church because of it. And I believe to restore and bring them back and present what it means to have a good, healthy church, we need to start a church that is for the next generation. Oh, second generation. And make what was known to be the next generation be our mainstream now generation. And you guys are way up ahead of me because you guys are 10 years into this going into 11th year, right? And I hope it continues in your heart. I hope that vision in your heart sets you in the right place where you can build your church on the healthiness in the eyes of God. And then and only then, I think, God will bless us and God will bless our next generation. Anyhow, so that was my introduction, sharing a little bit of my vision. Uh, Pastor Jason, when, when, I, when I asked him, like, what do you want me to preach about? He said, I want you to kind of give your heart of, of this zeal for planting church, this energy that I have. He asked me to, like, share them with you. And as I was trying to dive into the word, it kind of lacks it a little bit. So I thought I'll just begin with a sharing where I stand, right? And what I say in the church planting is that I think next year I'm going to begin, you know, recruiting and, and witnessing and bringing people and then start a church platform. But right now I'm still in a, a, a developing stage where I can have to look for a place and start, land on a place and then bringing people and then start formatting the meetings and such. That's where I am. But today, that's why, what I, what, as I was thinking and praying and then trying to seek out what should I, what can I share with you that could be worthwhile for you guys as you guys are trying to take a time away from your life and business and the church and actually think about where do you go next as your 11th year coming up. Mm. My immediate thought was I should talk to you guys about the mission of life. Mission of life. And that's why our topic today is the mission of life one, blessing in the midst of our lostness. With that, let's dive into our text. The text is from Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 to 10. I'll be reading from ESV version. And it says this. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, so Jesus looked up at, into Zacchaeus and said to Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received them joyfully. Verse 7, And when they saw it, the crowd was following Jesus, they all stood and said to the Lord, uh, I'm sorry, they, they all grumbled, he had gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man, came to seek and say the lost. And this is the word of the Lord. And before I dive into the word, I want to clarify the meaning of meaning of a missional life. Um, I heard it being taught, I should say, wrong, on the pulpit several times. So I want to clarify it. Um, Missional life has nothing to do with overseas mission. It, it doesn't. Um, it was somehow being talked about in, in some seminars, I guess, uh, where I, the, the church that I served previously, I heard him talk about it as this is a, a ministry focused teaching that breathe in, breathes in the, the, the zeal for people to join in for overseas mission. But it actually has nothing to do with mission. Or going to overseas mission. Guys, a missional life is not you taking, bring yourself to the mission field, but missional life actually has everything to do with you welcoming in mission to your life. So missional life is basically you turning every corner of your life into God's mission. That's what missional life is. And on the surface level, it seems very hard and difficult of a calling to obey and follow, but yet that is the calling that was actually given to all believers and all followers of Jesus Christ. We somehow learn to separate our personal life, which is our daily work and school and all else, and our spiritual life, which is like the church and then the missions and the humanitarian type of thing, the fellowship and all. We somehow learned to kind of separate the two, but it was never meant to be that way. Every calling to Jesus Christ, the salvation through Jesus Christ, and the two, be a disciple of Jesus Christ, means your acceptance to live your life missionally. You don't separate the two. And we'll see how that happens through the in our in our text today. This Zacchaeus guy, we we probably if you grew up in the church, you heard about him probably in your Sunday school, hopefully, right? We don't really know much about this guy. Uh, we don't actually really even know why he wanted to meet Jesus. Uh, what we know is that he was a very success-driven type of person. 
to a point where he decided to be a tax collector. By the way, tax collector is the one, or he there very looked down upon by the Jews. And the reason the Jews hated tax collector and called them sinners is because tax, in order for you to be a tax collector, you have to join and serve the Roman Empire, or Roman government. And Roman government, in their view, are the suppressor of the Jews, and they're the ones who are against God's will for Israel to be reestablished and be more powerful than before. So if anybody is to join the government of Roman government, Anybody is to help the Roman government, they're actually a traitor to the Jews. So they hated them. So if you actually look in the, in the New Testament, you will see a, a lot of tax collector in the, in the, the sinners category. There's Pharisees, there's Sadducees, there's a law, you know, the, the, the giver, and then there's tax collectors. But knowing that, Zacchaeus was so driven to succeed in his life that knowing that he chose that career path, not only that, he was able to be so successful to a point where he became a chief tax collector at Jericho. And Jericho was a really big and well-known and rich city. So not only to be just a tax collector, but to be the chief tax collector you have to be a very, very, very driven person to succeed. So in the eyes of the world, he's someone that people can look upon. He could be a role model in the sense where he drives to be successful and he has become successful. That could be a role model to many. And then the Bible says, he was rich. That's all we know about him. But then when, when we see him, there was one thing that we see that, that Zacchaeus was driven to do, which was to come and see Jesus. You know, this is, is, is an event that just kind of happened a little bit after when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified, but at this moment by his disciples and everybody else, thought that he was actually making his like the grand move to going to the Jerusalem and bring the Israelites together and then bring the nation back to Jerusalem. Because they thought he was such a great person, he has such a power, but then one event that, that God, one weird miracle that God has performed before this that kind of changed the game on him too, which is he, he raised up Lazarus from dead. He was dead for four days. And on the fourth day, Jesus brings him back to life. And when people saw that, right, I mean, Healing the, the sick is, is one thing. It's a miracle, yes. It's one thing. Driving out a demon is, is one thing. Like a kid who just died to come and kind of, you know, breathe a life back into him or her and bring him or her back to life is one thing. Although it is a, it is, you know, crazy miracle. But to bring somebody who's already been dead for four days back out from the tomb. That's a miracle of a whole other level. 
right? So Jesus was extremely popular by, by now, and that he just drew in so many crowds wherever he went. So if you kind of go back in your, in your Sunday school time, or even, you know, your adult time, if you ever had somebody preach on this, a um, lot of people puts a lot of focus on the zeal of Zacchaeus into what granting him the, the favor of Jesus Christ to see him and recognize him and coming to his house, right? Our focus somehow somehow becomes of the, the Zacchaeus' effort and Zacchaeus' zeal that somehow granted him God's favor. But he wasn't that. As Jesus was going down on Jericho, because he's on the way to go to Jerusalem, and as he was going through it, we actually see that Jesus was on the way to meet Zacchaeus to teach and show and tell other people that were following him something crucially important. Now we are often told that he's, he climbed up the tree and there was such a great effort like beyond everybody else that made him stand out. But, you know, sycamore tree, if you look up online and Google it, it's a tree with a lot of branches. It's not a tree where it goes straight up. It's so hard to climb up. It's actually a tree that comes out with a whole lot of branches. Where it's so easy for it to just climb up and to look. Right? So Zacchaeus was short. Yeah, he was short. And there was no place for him to go up. It's in the middle of the desert. So he just looks around and looks at a tree that kind of branches up, so he rides on it. And then he looks after Jesus. And he, the, 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 the tone of this, this, this text tells us that it, it makes it sound like if Zacchaeus was very special and he stood out in the crowd. But I'm sure there were many others who did that. Jesus literally had to fight the crowd to get down his way, right? I'm pretty sure there were many people who were on top of the buildings looking down to see Jesus. It was not that that brought or that caught Jesus' attention to Zacchaeus. Then if Zacchaeus was not much different compared to compared to other people who are actually following Jesus and who are waiting Jesus to meet with them, see him, right? Then what made him stand out? What made him so different that Jesus would come and actually he would look for him? Because if you look at the text, it actually literally looks like he was looking for him and came directly to Zacchaeus. So Jesus came to him and Jesus looked at him, right? He wasn't Zacchaeus like screaming, trying to catch attention. No, Jesus came to him and then he literally looked up at him while he was looking down at Jesus. He looked up at him and they say, I'm going to sleep at your place. I'm going to come to your, your home tonight. What made him stand out? Like I said, we don't know a whole lot about Zacchaeus. The answer is in verse 10. Where it says, Jesus says this at the very end of our text. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
And how does that separate Zacchaeus apart from everybody else? One thing that we know after this text, what drove Zacchaeus to want to see Jesus, we don't even know how much he knew about Jesus. We don't even know how much he knew about what Jesus taught. All he wanted was that I want to meet Jesus. I want to see him. That's all we know of him. Maybe he heard other people talking about what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. Maybe he never did. Maybe he just heard what what Jesus said. But I'm sure if he heard anything about Jesus, he probably heard that, hey, Jesus always talked about this kingdom of heaven. Because this was all he talked about. Everywhere Jesus went, that's all he talked about. And when he found that out, and when he heard that, Zacchaeus realized that he was lost. After all his success, after all the money that he has stored up, all the respect, governmental, I don't know, social network that he created, he was lost. He, it did not give him what he thought that it would give him. There was no level of satisfaction. There was no answer to his feeling of lostness. And there was no contentment. It really did not give him anything that he thought it would give it to him. So while he, in the eyes of the world, had it all, he was simply lost. And then what's more important is that out of all the crowd that separated Zacchaeus out of the the rest of the crowd is that he realized and he recognized that he was lost. Guys, going on a sidetrack a little bit. um, And we're we're living in such a, you know, materialistic-centered world. We're living in a world where we are indoctrinated indoctrinated to succeed so much to a point where when we see other people who are more successful than than us, people who make more money, who has a more fancy and higher paying jobs, who become more influential and popular, who seem like who has a, you know, taller and better looking kids in their family, and living in a nice and better house. While I'm driving Hyundai, he's driving like Lexus. Like when we kind of see that, right? We tend to think that their lives must be better than mine. We somehow think that they don't need any help. We immediately think that their lives are much more luxurious. Their lives are much more abundant. But the truth is, if you get to sit with different types of people, and talk heart to heart, you'll find out that everybody's lost. Everybody. Um, in the church that I'm in, resident at City Church, um, we have a professional baseball player in our congregation. I don't watch baseball, um, so I don't know who he is. I just know his name, which I'm not going to mention, right? 
Um, and I was at a at an elders meeting, and we we're, were talking, and they were sharing about his life because his wife came to the pastor, and then she shared like about her life. And then our pastor learned that that they were extremely lost and unhappy. The baseball player who's supposed to be kind of decently well-known is literally burnt out, very unhappy. Um, his wife and they have two kids together. Um, you know, they go to church to try to find some good fellowship and healing. And the moment people find out that they're baseball players or professional baseball player family, that people don't really reach out to them as a person. Their spiritual dryness, emotional dryness, and the loneliness that they kicked in, where the wife went through some severe, like, you know, mental issues, like depression. But on the surface, whenever I see them at church, you don't see that. You don't see that at all. All of us have tried to put a, put a little face to, to make it look as if everything is okay. Cause we don't want to look as a person who's kind of incapable of handling the stress of life, right? We, we don't want to be viewed as that type of person. We want to be viewed as the people who figured it all out. Who have everything lined up. But in your personal life, you find yourself lost. We're so well trained to a point where we, we learn how to, how to trick ourselves, think that no, everything's fine. Everybody's doing the same thing. Everybody's going through the same hardship. I mean, this is nothing. Like, I can, I can suck it up and go. And then we just keep on pushing and pushing and pushing to a point where it becomes so dull at it that we don't recognize our lostness day in and day out. But why is this knowing and recognizing our lostness so important. Why was it the point that drove Zacchaeus to come see Jesus? And why did that become something that Jesus recognized to bless over? Answer is very simple. Guys, only the lost people look for Jesus. If you think that you have everything figured out in your life, you don't need Jesus. You don't need dependence. You don't need God in your life. Because you got everything figured out. The amount of lostness of my life that I recognize, that amount is called God's grace. Because you learn that amount of lostness that you recognize in your life is what God has redeemed you from. That's where God has restored you from. That's where God has provided your healing. So no lostness, no God's grace in your life. More grace that you recognize in your life more you know how much God loves you.
God, thank you. Maybe it was because the Holy Spirit really hasn't come down yet. So people there, the crowd really didn't recognize. But somehow Zacchaeus knew that I'm lost. Despite all these things that I have, all these blessings that, that the people look at and they envy over, despite all of that, I, I, I'm completely lost. And they seek after Jesus for his answer. Pastor John Piper said this. He said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but on a good day, you may be aware of three of them. Right? So, God basically, if you kind of step back away from your business of life and all the agendas of your life and start seeking and start seeing, start to try to count the blessings that God has poured down upon you, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Even just the mere existence of our life, that's God's grace. The very breath that you're actually breathing in, that's God's grace. You may be overstressed at work, at school, and everything else, but the mere fact that you're there, that's God's blessing. The fact that God has given you a reason to be productive in your that's God's blessing. If you're married, despite how often you fight with your wife or husband, the fact that you have a loving husband and loving wife, you are blessed. Although your kids can be such a pain, at times, they're nothing but blessing in your life. Once you start stepping back away from everything that you live without recognizing God's grace in your life, you start recognizing you are just overflown with the blessings of God. And despite that, if you start counting you are grudging against God. Your complaints against God. With all these things that I am unsatisfied for and all the disobedience that I have done against God. Despite all of that, when you come to Christ knowing that He still died for you, that's your blessing. Jesus said He is the way. He is the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the way to the answer. If you're lost, ask me. Now going back to the text. Zacchaeus recognized that people were grudging against him. And then in that, actually, the text is actually creating a clear comparison between the people who are following Jesus, who are amongst the people of God, 
Yet who kind of missed out on recognizing that their lostness is there compared to Zacchaeus who actually has it all figured out. He says the people who are actually around Jesus, who are following him, who saw the miracles even ahead of him, who probably are more theologically like well, you know, educated, people who knew Christ more, who know the Bible more, who are in the religious circle much more, who are with Jesus, while they're still with Jesus, they were lost. They will say, why is Jesus going to dine with sinners? They completely lost the point of Jesus' ministry. They completely lost his, his teaching of where all of us are sinners. And you know what? Don't we do this? In our churches today, too, we, we, we tend to do this. We, we somehow create what we call as church tradition and church hierarchies and, 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 or whatnot. And, and one of the biggest misconceptions that, that you know, a lot of the Christians have today is that church is a place where the saints come together. It's true, but it's only half true. Church is a place where all the sinners come together to seek God. Church is a place where people who recognize that they're lost, church is a place where people recognize that they're sinners, come together, seeking God together. When Zacchaeus found Christ, if you look at it, what's so amazing, I still like, as I'm trying to dive in and dig in more and try to study more of the text, what really dawned at me is that, that Zacchaeus didn't even get to talk to Jesus yet. You guys see that? He never even really got to sit down and listen to the kingdom of heaven. He, he never even got to hear how you, how you receive your eternal life yet. As a matter of fact, it doesn't look like he knows that he can actually receive eternal life through Jesus. But when he met Jesus, when he learned that, when he experienced and learned that, hey, Jesus has the answer to all my lostness in my life, and then people were criticizing Jesus because of him, because of him, he's kind of failing Jesus to receive the rightful Glory that he's supposed to be receiving from people. This is his, his, his response. Verse 8. He says this. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, to Jesus, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Do you guys see what he's saying here? He's literally saying, all my wealth, I'll give it all away. Right? Half of it is already gone. And one of the ways that tax collectors made a lot of money was by cheating on the tax. That's how they became wealthy. 
basically like if the government charged Eugene like a thousand dollar in tax, they basically went to Eugene and say like, "Hey, you actually a fifteen hundred dollars in tax." He doesn't know. He's not well connected to the government, right? So he pays fifteen hundred dollars. So I made extra five hundred dollars on top of what I'm supposed to be make out of that thousand dollars. That's how they made money. That's how they became wealthy. He's basically saying, I will pay back four times over of what I cheated on people. And half of your wealth is already gone. He's saying that, take it all. I don't need it. I don't need it. Instead of all that, he's saying, I have Jesus. You know, if you kind of pay attention a little bit more to the text and then the scripture, in verse uh, chapter 18, which is a chapter before this, verses, chapter 18, verse 18 to 30, if you want to go look, um, there's this young guy, rich young ruler that appears in that text. If you know about his event, it's the direct opposite outcome. They're both rich. They, they're both influential. They're both powerful and extremely successful. They come to Jesus. What's actually more interesting is that this rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, he specifically asked Jesus, how can I receive eternal life? He knows what he's talking about. He knows what he can gain from Christ. He know he knows exactly what kind of the return on investment if he just follows what Jesus tells him to do, and that's what he wanted all his life, eternal life. But when we met with Jesus, who are actually more well-educated, who knew about Christ, who knew about theological stuff, he would tell Jesus that I followed all the laws. He was a very religious person. But when Jesus said, hey, sell all your stuff and follow me. All your stuff that, that you have, and the Bible will say, he got sad because he was a man of great wealth. So he has a lot of money. And knowing that, Jesus pinpoints it and they say, you know that thing that you're having a really hard time letting go? You know that, that one thing that you're depending on much more than how you depend on me? Let that go. Follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Follow me. Then eternal life that you so want in your life, you will get it. And as soon as he receives the answer, he makes the choice. You know, if you had a question, and after you receiving an answer of, of some kind, if you juggled it, measured it, and then you kind of calculated all your logical calculation, and at the end of the day, if you made your best choice, shouldn't you be happy? 
Shouldn't you be satisfied? Shouldn't you be content? But the rich young ruler walks away extremely, extremely sad. Same setting, same situation, but completely different outcome, right? When we want to live a missional life, if we want to make our lives or every corners of our lives, not just Sunday or not just the church you know, meeting time, or when we go to mission field or whatever else, if we want to make our lives a mission field for God, one thing that you need to restore is the Lord's Jesus' lordship over your life. Jesus should not be partial. As rich young ruler had it all. He was religious too. He put one foot in the world's success. He put another foot in wanting to follow God. It was not like that he didn't want Jesus. Not like that he didn't want to receive the eternal life. He wanted it all. But at the same time, he couldn't let go of what he thought was giving him the satisfaction and success of life. What he wanted in life. The very thing that was holding him from actually receiving the eternal life in heaven, he couldn't let go. Pastor J.D. Greer, who, who's a, you know, lead pastor at the Summit Church, uh, he wrote a book called Gaining by Losing. Um, if you guys ever want to pick up a book to read, um, that could kind of inspire you to live more missional life and live for Christ, pick that up. Gaining by Losing. Uh, it's one of the best books that I've read. Um, and in the beginning part, portion of his book, this is what it says. He says, but throughout the scripture, before God built something great in the spirit, he first tore down the efforts of the flesh. Guys, we, we, we get indoctrinated by people and indoctrinated by the, 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 what is promised after, after we reach whatever the success that you label as your success. As we are driven, as we just go after that, we kind of forget the fact that there is much bigger joy in following Christ. We, we somehow become very blindfolded to the true value of obedience to Christ that we get tricked into something that's finite and they will not give you what you want. And like J.D. Greer said, our fleshly desire sometimes had to be torn down so that we finally grasp the actual benefit of following Christ. 
the one who obeyed to the calling of Christ, Zacchaeus, if you see his reaction, he had nothing but joy in his life. What he valued in life before he wanted these success and material goods and all this like money and wealth to serve him, to give him the joy, to give him the satisfaction, to give him the purpose of life. When he met Christ, all of them became the tools to just glorify God. Because he found out that Christ himself is much greater in value than what he thought this stuff he had had. It's the biggest lie that we fall. So when I said, finally gave in, it took me a year of a fighting back when God said, hey, David, I want you to become a pastor. Um, I was already serving at a multiple different ministries. I was reaching out to three different college campuses. I had my own business going at that time. And everything was like so fine and well. It's not that I wasn't serving God. I was, I thought I was maxing out, stretching myself thin to serve God every way possible. And they said, no, 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 no. I want you to drop all of it and then come and be a pastor. I didn't like that calling. By the way, guys, when God calls you, we, we pray for God's calling a lot, right? Like we pray for God's direction in our, our lives a lot. Um, cause we know that at the end of that, like calling and the finishing, the finishing line of that calling, we know that there's God's glory. There's a lot of blessing there. So we kind of pray for it. We kind of want it. But as you pray for it, guys, um, be aware of what you're about to get. Cause throughout the Bible, when God asks you to do something, something or people to do something in the Bible, it was very overwhelming for almost everyone in the Bible. There's something like way beyond their, 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 their understanding, their ability to accept. It was just radical. So when God tells you, oh yeah, you want my will clarified in your life? Like in your long term, this is what I want you to be when he throws at you. More likely, your response won't be, like, I, I jump for joy. Your response will be like, that? You mean like, that's what you want me to do? We'll be probably more like a realistic response from you, right? But anyhow, when you actually seek God, when you meet Jesus, Jesus should be enough in your life to have joy in every circumstances and stages of your life. It should not be what he gives you. It should not be what he can take you to or what he can fill you up with. It should not be all the stuff that Jesus can pour down as blessing in your life. It should be Jesus that you should be satisfied with. Like we see in Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus knew nothing about Jesus. He didn't even know what Jesus was going to tell him. But he knew that Jesus has the answer. And this very difficult calling of, 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 of Jesus happens with how much you learn about how lost you are in this life. 
Because in the midst of your lostness, God takes you in. God leads you. God provides you. God guides you. God promises safety of your life more than anything. God promises joy and peace and blessing. That's why having Jesus in your life is the most important source of joy in your life. Not what you do, not what you gain, not what you can buy, not what you can obtain, achieve, not what God can pour down on you. That's all byproducts. But Jesus himself. And before you find out how wonderful it is, before you receive the restoration of your first love, when you first learn that Jesus died for you on a cross for your sin, so that you receive your eternal life heaven, when you are restored in that, your life changes. Missional life is not a program. I hate it when there's like a program, a list of it, you know, one to ten. This is how you can reach out and evangelize people, you know, list one to ten. This is how you can become more, you know, you know, like a spiritually mature list one to ten. The set program, once you go through this, you'll be more mature guy, you'll be more holy person. No, all it is is you need Jesus restored in your life. You need your heart to change so that despite whatever happens in your life, all the good days and the bad, all the blessed days that you may think and the worst, Jesus is there. And because of that, you find your joy. Because of that, you find your peace. You know, 10 years is a, is a long time. I, I, I really admire you guys for staying in, in, in your church and still kind of surviving for 10 years. And it becomes easy for us to try to jump on the list of what can we do next, right? What can we do to, you know, bring more people into the church? How can we bring revival to the church? And we get, you know, too caught up in the, the things that we should do to bring revivals or whatnot. Um, but I'm a strong believer of, of how the church, the healthy church that we really so desire, um, it comes to us through the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on you. You want to bring more people into the church? If that's your goal, just do more events. I think I know exactly how to build a church in numbers. So I've been with the other big churches doing their events. I was part of it. I was directing it. I know how to run the event. That's not how we develop a healthy church. We actually get caught up in the middle of us being too busy with the church ministries that we lose Jesus. Have you guys ever found yourself in the middle of that? You know, as I shared in the beginning, I became bitter toward Korean church a lot. And one of the main reasons is that I did so much work. 
Um, you know, Korean churches really work you a lot. And they pay you like less than minimum wage. So I worked like minimum 60 hours to like 100 hours every week. Um, vacation, they say I have it, but I rarely got it. They'll say that you get Mondays off, but I often get called to the church on Monday. Right? I need to meet up with people on Monday as well. Um, I do ministries on Monday. So it's basically a seven-day job, right? And then there are times when you have to go overseas, other places, and you just kind of spend the entire week away from your family. And as soon as I get back, what I get on my list is tomorrow I have to go to Sebekido. I'm like, what? I just came from Mexico. And the next day I had to go up at like 4.30 in the morning and go to church by 5, right? So I was bitter. But as I sought Christ, as I sought church, what I was bitter toward that I found out was not that there was a lot of work. What I was bitter toward is that out of all that work, I found myself Christless. Out of all that work, my sermon preaching was just a routine thing that I do every Sunday. Because I was just so beat up every week with all the load of work to do that I lost the sight of Jesus Christ in the church. Number grows. People admire the size of the church. But I wasn't satisfied one bit with what was happening. We want to grow our church, right? There's no ends and buts about it. I'll cover a little more, but then evangelism is a huge portion, a huge part of you just being a Christian. It's everybody's calling. Every believer, you're called to be a witness for Jesus Christ, right? So the, the number growing in the church is just natural portion of, of, of things, but you do that through your genuine love for Jesus Christ. You do that because you are Filled with joy and, and gladness and happiness and contentment because the Lord is with you. And as you guys are making this monumental turn in your life, I want you guys to be able to step away from all the things that you can easily and quickly jump into try to make things better and try to make things work more. To focus on how you can restore your relationship with the Lord. And how you can store Jesus' lordship over your life. That's first. The moment that we are, we, we take our sight away from that, the moment that we focus on this, 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 how to build a church 101 to try to increase the number. Guys, you stop, you seize being a church. Church is supposed to be the body of Christ. And headless church cannot exist.
There could be some people in, in this congregation today who just burn out. You know, the life is hard. And then as you get older, I'm 47, and I thought as I get older that life will become a little easier. Um, I found out that it just gets harder. I preached that at one of the local, like, uh, you know, American church, uh, and a couple of uh, elderly, like, you know, um, brother, like, they're in their 70s. Um, they kind of lined up to say, you know, thank you or whatnot, and then they shook their hand and they said, you know, your life does get better. And he said, but you have to live another 20 years of your life <laughs> before it hits you. But stand strong. It's going to get better. <laughs> but so far, in my experience, life is just hard. And we, we live in a world where it just, it just moves so fast. It just changes so fast that we don't even know what hits us. We go through a lot of hardships and difficulties. There's just so much of weight of life that weighs us down too, right? So this calling to restore your joy in Christ is not an easy calling. It's, it's not. And that's why you need to intentionally, intentionally, Step away from your business of life and seek out for God's blessings in your life. You know, we're so blessed that we believe in God. We call our God, our, you know, the, the, our God, where He is faithful even the times when we are not. Right? And the only way, only only thing that you ought to do to restore your your heartful joy and heartful contentment is to just take your time to step away from everything of your life and seek out what God is doing in your life. Guys, we cannot give what we do not have. We can't share the joy in Christ if we don't have joy in Christ. We can't share the peace of God if we don't have the peace of God. Before you jump into anything, that's what you ought to do. Your ministry work, though it could be hard, it could be difficult, God will ask you something that you will say, I don't want to do this. But in the midst of all of that, guys, don't lose your joy in Christ. When you lose your joy in Christ, you lose everything. So if we have a desire, if you feel like you're called to live a missional life, which I can tell you that God called every one of us to live the missional life, 
Because it's time to kind of slow everything down and seek out for God. It's time to stop everything and to restore our joy in Him. Your workplace that you might be like overly stressed can become a blessing to you when you step away and recognize the goodness of God over your work. The boss that you have that you have such a hard time getting along with could become a blessing to you if you just step away from your life and see how God is working with you. Your situations in your life that may be dragging you down can only become a blessing and joy to you when you find Jesus working in the midst of it. Hey, if on a good day we can only notice three things that God is doing out of 10,000 things he's doing, there's something that you'll find that will become blessing to you. And only with that joy then you can serve the Lord right. Only with that joy that you can prolong without being burned out. We have a big task ahead of us. We're trying to reach out to our generation of people who are known to be one of the hardest groups to reach out to. Even the white pastors know that. Do you guys know? I talk to local like pastors and they will say like, wow, there's such a hard group to reach out to. But when you, when we look back, when we go back in our time, we were the generation. I was like before you guys, but you guys are fine. We were the generation who were just a zeal, who just were fired off our time. We have so many youth groups everywhere who seek out for God's glory. I witnessed so many people who just wanted to just live it out and and be be spent for God. But growing up, like years passed by, we lost them. We lost them. After years passed by, maybe we are struggling too. When God calls us to that, guys, stop and refresh yourself in Christ. Stop and recharge yourself in the Lord. Stop and energize in the goodness of God. So now you have something to offer to others. Let's pray. Father God, I... I spoke out what you have laid in my heart Lord left to myself there's nothing worthy that I can say that could actually mean anything nothing that I can say on my own has any value to us so I pray Lord Father the Holy Spirit will just minister with the words that you have put in my mouth let that become the word that has spoken through the Holy Spirit, so that it'll continue to stir us up in our heart, and that it'll draw us closer to our fellowship with Jesus Christ where we need to be. 
Would you restore our joy in Jesus? We often find ourselves thinking that, yes, I want Jesus, but I want Jesus and then something else. But Lord, we know that it is just Jesus and Jesus only who provides all the joy that we need in this world, all the contentment and satisfaction we need in this world. It is when Jesus plus something happens in our lives, we start becoming discontent. We start losing our sight and we become more lost in the world. And I pray, Lord Father, that you will just restore us that. Let us have that faith once again, knowing that Jesus is enough. Lord, as you, Lord Father, progress with our, our, our revival, would you continue to work within our hearts? Would you continue to stir us in our hearts so that we may grow and mature? And we may be, Lord Father, channeled back into the direction that you want us to go as the follower of Jesus Christ. Would you restore us that, that zeal and joy that Zacchaeus showed us in our text so that our lives may be full again because of your presence in our lives. We thank you, God. In your son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray.